Hey y'all, this is Benny, the host of the Last Week at Podcast. Before we really get into this week's episode, I just wanted to say that it's been great fun for me and my co-host Mayank to use this podcast as a medium to chat with an incredible area of guests from all over the world on a variety of topics in the cricketing universe. For a couple of amateur podcasters, this is all possible due to Spotify for podcasters. And if you want to get in on this as well, here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. As added features, video podcasts are also now available on Spotify. And when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. So if you have an idea for a podcast, give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com podcasters to get started. Hello and welcome to The Last Wicket, a cricket podcast where we speak with some of the finest cricket minds that we can manage to get on the show. I'm your host, Benny, and this week we will be speaking with former India batsman, commentator, and current Bengal coach, the one and only Arun Lal. Your podcast hosts that comprises of Himanish, Mayan, Kanish, and myself were very fortunate to speak with him recently, where he opened up on a wide range of topics. We talked about his approach to coaching in the domestic circuit, his thoughts on how a commentator can add value to proceedings, memories of Bengal's Ranji Trophy win in 1990, his fight against cancer, and much, much more. Here is a straight-from-the-heart conversation we had with Arun Lal. Uh, a warm welcome to uh, Arun Lal. Uh, it's a it's a privilege for the last record hosts here to speak with a former player, commentator, coach. Thank you so much, Arun, for joining us. Pleasure, pleasure. Uh, so, sir, how are you? How are you today? How uh, you know? Uh, I know that you mentioned that you were on a break for a couple of weeks. Uh, how how have you been? Oh, I've been fabulous. I had a wonderful vacation in Arunachal Pradesh, saw the snow, saw the ice, saw how the army lives in, you know, minus 27 for almost six months in a year. Uh, And that's the the average temperature uh, on the borders of India. And there's been uh, quite a a lot of happening there. So it it was a revelation to go there, uh, enjoy nature at its best, untouched. Um, you know, um, roads being built, carved out of mountains on a on a war footing. Uh, mm-hmm. But the people out there, people out there, they're humble, simple, nice, uh, attached to nature more than anything else, and and Buddhists. Uh, so it, it was wonderful to be there. Right, and I know you're a big nature person, so I'm assuming that must have been uh, really great for you. Uh, but I'm also curious, you know, the, the last year, you know, it feels like the world has come to a standstill because of the pandemic. Uh, how have you dealt with that over the past few months? Has that, you know, changed anything for you just in the way you go about your life or uh, your work? 
Yeah, everything, in fact, uh, the whole world is in turmoil, as you know it. And uh, there is this fear hanging, you know, over your head that you might contract it. And in fact, uh, you know, despite all the, the precautions, I did uh, get corona and got out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a mild case, but the after effects, because of my age, they tell me were, uh, the, you know, the reason why I had such a, a problematic two months after corona. I contracted all kinds of infections, um, headaches, nausea. Um, it, it was very debilitating. So I'm really happy to be out of it uh, and, uh, you know, healthy and well again and, uh, you know, doing all kinds of exercises. But uh, the pandemic has changed us all, you know, right. in our perspective. As you know, um, it's affected everybody. It's affected uh, sport and how it's played and how it's conducted and, uh, you know, you're playing in front of empty stadiums and you're, you're, you're this uh, bubble, as they call it, the bio bubble right. is very, very difficult. Uh, you know, people don't quite understand what it entails, but it's, um, it's uh, really as much um, of an ask from a sports person to be totally isolated for two months uh, during a competition mm-hmm. as is playing the sport at the highest level. So, it's been very, very difficult on sports people. I can tell you beyond what anybody else sees, uh, it's not easy. I agree. I mean, a, a lot of us have been uh, focused on, at, at least for cricket fans, I feel like I can say that we just wanted to see some cricket being played, right? We are not thinking behind the scenes, whatever, mm-hmm. what measures that the players need to take, the coaching staff. And, you know, we get a little bit of frustration when we, you know, when there's not enough games happening. Uh, but it's good to get that perspective because it's not just about the logistics, but it's also the mental health of players, of the, all the people who are involved in these bubbles. And it, it sounds like you had a bit of uh, a small taste of that too when this began. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, you know, I'm coaching the Bengal cricket team uh, in for the first for the first class season. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. we couldn't play the Ranji Trophy. But yeah. we had the 2020 and the one dayers and you know, this bio-bubble, the strange uh, requirements is that you, you get in there six or eight days before. And in right. those six, eight days, you've got to be tested every alternate day and you, you are room-bound. You can't even communicate with the person next to you. you. You can't meet them personally. You can be on Zoom calls and things like that. But yeah. uh, that six, eight days is very difficult. And when you finish uh, part of the tournament here and you've got to go to another venue, again, six, eight days. And yeah. then the bio-bubble begins. And in the bio-bubble, along with all the pressures and tension of sport at the highest level, uh, comes this particular aspect of uh, your mentality. And it's, uh, it's affected a lot of people. So, um, right. you know, only people going through it. Uh, it's in, in fact, it's worth pointing out to people like you were actually just watching the end result and product mm-hmm. that um, behind the scenes has been very, very, uh, uh, very difficult. Yeah. And I can see why, you know, we should reserve judgment, especially when players just want to take a break. You know, mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. It, we don't know the effect that it's having on them, their families. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense in this new world that we live in when players just need a break from all of it. So mm-hmm. it's it's totally understandable. Yes, sir. So um, you mentioned, obviously, uh, being the coach of Bengal. So uh, I wanted to ask a little bit about how preparations happen around that. So how does the domestic season, um, you know, how early in the domestic season do you start preparing? 
And is there a process to talk to local coaches um, uh, or scouts? And, uh, you know, what are the other things that are done uh, in preparation for? Uh, I know this was there was no Ranji Trophy this time, but uh, considering if it's a full season, what are the uh, all the things that go into it prior to the season? You know, our season begins in about October, start of October and goes on till March. Uh, so you have a 2020 competition state-wise, and then you have a one-day competition, and you have the Ranjit, which is a, a four-day competition. So you have all the three formats, and you've got to prepare for all of them. And prior to that, uh, generally you start, you know, you have a, a camp, uh, which is a fitness uh, regime, uh, along with certain net practice uh, and, you know, skill development programs. So you do that, say, about two months before. And in Bengal, uh, you know, which is it's peculiar to Bengal or the East, that we have a very extended monsoon and it's not possible for us to play cricket for at least five months in the year. Now, that's a, a built-in handicap to where you are. Uh, and uh, you've got to work around it. So when you do your pre-season uh, training, it's basically based on training, not on matches. And because of the obvious reason that you cannot play cricket. And of course, some indoor or cement-based skill training in the nets. So uh, we've, right. always been, we've always been handicapped in that sense, where the rest of the country is playing almost 10 months in a year. We can only play about six to seven months in a year. In fact, our domestic season, domestic to Bengal, that is, begins only in November. And you, you've got no wickets or grounds ready for cricket because... Uh, due to the paucity of facility available in Kolkata, um, you know, it's a crowded city. Uh, it's a very vibrant city. I not, I never, you know, want to trade places with anybody else in the world living in Kolkata. I'm an absolute fan. But having said that, it's also a handicap in the sense that we have very few play fields. Uh, and the same grounds are used for hockey, cricket and football. So football extends during the rains and the grounds are absolutely churned up. And that stops only in about end September, beginning October. And that's when these same very grounds are then uh, starting to prepare for the cricket season. So we begin in November. We are very handicapped. So by the time we begin our domestic circuit, the, uh, the first class circuit is almost half done. So we go into uh, the first class circuit highly underprepared uh, and not really knowing uh, how to select because it's based on last year's performances. Uh, so uh, there is no such thing as current form, current preparedness, match practice. And for that, we do tour. Uh, you know, we leave Bengal and send our team all over the country to be playing certain preseason match practices. But, you know, that's all uh, then sprayed away from the, the 30 that is training together. You send the under-23s to Bangalore to play a tournament and you send um, the main team uh, pre-season like last, not last year, last year was a washout. The year before we went in September to play um, practice games in Jaipur, where it's uh, easily available. So uh, we have to work around it. We do a great job. Uh, so we are uh, second to none as far as talent is concerned because there can't be. There's an even distribution uh, all over the world. So. Uh, what we suffer from is this particular aspect of not being able to be playing as much cricket as the rest of the country, at least in the, uh, at least in the north and the south. 
so we are uh, we've got to work beyond that. And traditionally, you know, uh, Bengal uh, uh, is very heavy on culture, on the appreciation of art uh, and culture and sport. Uh, for that, it's a very cerebral kind of a culture. It's uh, you know very appreciative of song and dance and poetry and lyrics and drama and writing and all kinds of things. Uh, so it's very rich culture and very cerebral, but for that you have to have knowledge of all these aspects. And hence, um, it is uh, very time consuming and you're not that focused on a one aspect growing up in this state. You're taught to admire a lot of things and to understand a lot of things. Um, you, Thought is the essence of Bengal. Everybody is encouraged to think and have a view and express that view. Hence the Adda, you know, the Bengali Adda, where uh, guys get together and over uh, in a chai stall in the morning and can discuss any aspect in the world. So, you know, all that culture, I'm just trying to explain to you Bengal uh, the way it is and how this very aspect that I so admire and almost envy coming out of Delhi and, you know, uh, a Punjabi culture, that uh, it is also, the downside is it's inimical to uh, extreme competition. People don't understand uh, that you've got to win. Um, they'll question that as well. I mean, why do you have to win? Uh, you know, so a lot of things are not quite right for the bringing of competition in the extreme. So while it has its advantages, it also has this particular aspect to it. So, uh, you know, so the, the guys are extremely talented, but maybe not as physically prepared or as physically ready to handle the rest of the country. Um, so that's one of the areas that I always work very hard on with the guys and keep drilling into them that, you know, um, if we have to win, we have to work harder than the rest of the country. We have to be fitter than any other team in the country. And uh, at the moment, we're not. Uh, you know, so it's a bit of a struggle getting, it's a cultural, uh, uh, so plus uh, the fact that we have a paucity of grounds, plus the fact that we have uh, rains, which um, downpours for about five months in a year. Um, considering all that, I think Bengal is doing pretty well. Right. And, and that's that's a fascinating thought because I've always known as Kolkata being, you know, the city where Indian city where which loves football the most. And I never connected the rain and and that aspect of it. So uh, that as well as, you know, the cultural aspect absolutely makes sense. And it, it you know, it shows why it, it takes an you know extra step or extra few steps to um, compete with the you know Mumbai's of the world, um, so to say. Um, but moving on to, um, you know, other, uh, another question related to coaching that I had was, uh, you know, these days we've seen under 19 players who play for India, they've already played for the Ranji trophy in some cases. Um, and, you know, the, I've always wondered how selectors and coaches identify talent at that young age. Um, one is obviously, you know, they end up making a good amount of runs, uh, but, I've heard that selectors sometimes listen to the sound that a batsman makes when he's hitting the ball. Um, are there any other similar traits that you look for when, when selecting both a batsman and a bowler? Yeah, um, you know, you're right. It's, it's not just 
performance. Uh, otherwise, you wouldn't need a selector or a coach, uh, you know, because then the computer would select, you know, he's got a thousand runs and he's got right. 800 to take the guy. Yes, eventually it is the performance, of course. But, you know, there are special cases. Uh, some guys that are given a longer rope, um, a longer failure pattern and not dispensed with that early compared to others. And that's when you come across this undefinable, um, um, almost indeterminate uh, thing called talent. Uh, you know, it's, it's used all the time. Um, we use, oh, he's got exceptional talent, but nobody defines it. And what, what do you mean by talent? What is talent? Um, it's, um, it's not easy to define. I've asked many people, you say so-and-so is talented. What do you mean? And everybody means something different. But to me, you know, when I'm looking at a, at a young cricketer batting, uh, there is a difference in, you know, uh, sometimes we say he's got so much time to play, uh, so much time to play the shot. Now, actually, there's no time to play the shot. It's a, you know, a fraction of a second. I and mean, how much more time can he have compared to the other guy? You know, maybe one hundredth of a second. Uh, but the, the point is that the guy almost instinctively uh, comes into position or he he's judging the ball, the length, the pace that much earlier. And what we call in local parlance that he's not jhapoing, you know, he's not um, uh, uh, groping for the ball. He's waiting for the ball to come and hit him and playing very close to the body. So those things stand out to a trained eye, which has been viewing the game for so long in a very analytical fashion. So those things help, you know, like, um, how, how would I describe it? Uh, an elegance, uh, a languidness to uh, something like a, uh, like a Rohit Sharma on his best day. You know, uh, the way he plays, the way he gets his runs, it's also easy. Then or there's Ganguly. this new guy. Yeah, or Ganguly uh, for that matter. Or Ganguly, yeah. The, no, generally, left-handers have a particular grace right. to the eye. But the other guy that stands out playing late is this new guy from Bangalore, Padakal. Dev, Devjit or Devdat Padakal. Devdat. He's got this, uh, you know, um, this particular quality. Uh, and elegance is part of talent. Uh, playing late is part of talent. Pleasing to the eye is part of talent. Uh, and uh, eventually... It's the weight of runs here. You know, you can't have a talented you are. Right. The other guy is um, uh, um, pretty much uh, uh, almost ugly while batting, but he gets his hundreds. Uh, eventually, that guy will make it. So it's performance and it's how you handle yourself mentally. You know, um, when have your runs come? When you are 200 for one or when you are 60 for five? Uh, when have your runs come? When are you playing uh, the final or are you playing the semi-final or are you playing a league game? The, the moment when your team is up against it, you're following on and the wicket has deteriorated. Have you got a double hundred? Uh, you know, so a lot of that is talent. And to, to me, that means the mind, the self-belief, uh, the, the propensity to soak in pressure and perform under it, uh, that to me is talent, uh, rather than just pleasing to the eye. Uh, when your team is up against it, you put your hand up and perform. How many such innings have you had in the past year, two years? Uh, those are the things that really stand out. And when the chips are down, you need guys like this who are strong of the mind. 
and cricket is such a cerebral game you know um, yes it's of course fitness and everything but uh, to me it's eventually one against 11 you're going in there and there's so many um, uh, let's say uncontrollables yeah, the ball might keep low the empire might give it out uh, you might get an edge uh, the same ball uh, which uh, you know uh, would brilliant delivery would beat the bat and you get a double hundred but if it took the edge you're a zero so you know so many things contribute to cricket and because you're fans of the game i'm telling you cricket and uh, how difficult it is uh, compared to any other sport i mean any other sport you can come back but cricket you can't come back it's death it's sudden death all through your life all through every match you play it's sudden death the minute you're out you're out and it's over and it could be because the umpire has given you out and he's made an error it could be because there was the variations of the wicket uh, suddenly cropped up uh, the only ball that really reared up and took your glove and got you out and no other ball behaved like that in in the entire five days so there's so many things to this game that fascinate me so you know similar on similarly on that note um, there's this you know thought process that now we should let youngsters play their natural game versus you know where they have their own slightly you know modified techniques versus teaching them the right textbook te- uh, technique um, where do you draw the line on that especially when you see young players coming in you know nowadays because there are three formats of the game, you are now uh, your perspective as a coach is to try and prepare somebody for all the formats if possible uh, eventually uh, you know you do find uh, different teams for different formats but the endeavor is that and that's damn tough that's almost an impossibility uh, ideally you want to focus on the youngster playing his natural game but you know it's the same thing as a coach saying that stay in the present stay in the present uh, you know keep it simple all these things are cliches they are easier said than done how can you play your natural game when you're uh, you're walking in at 200 for one as compared to 60 for 6 and you're out of the tournament uh, the guy who can do that is extra special he's extraordinary he's from a different planet that is why you are suddenly seeing somebody like rishabh pant who's different the guy who started being different like a paradigm shift in uh, everything in, in indian cricket was a guy called virender sehwag you know how do you do that how do you hit a six when you are 194 how do you you know I, i'll tell you the conventional tendulkar would take six singles sehwag is hitting the ball for six he's extraterrestrial i i even talked to him as what is it yeah? i mean how is i don't think 194 or 4 is the same the ball is there in my slot to hit so i hit now i can't understand that i am only envious of that uh, fearlessness the younger generation as compared to my generation the difference is that they are a lot more fearless nothing can be better than that yeah right nothing because uh, most of us uh, at least i know myself have lived my life in fear in fear of the uncertainty in insecurities that we are born on in a country like india um, you know third world and our upbringing middle class and lower middle class everything we fear we fear you know will i get a job we fear uh, anything and everything what will the guy next door say what is this what's that uh, cricket uh, is a fearful game and it's uh, you know it's a cruel game and if anybody can transcend this fear he's special 
And Rishabh Pant, how do you explain a guy who's, who's just been, you know, I'll give you an instance. I was watching this test match in Australia and the ball turned square from off spinner to him. He's a left-hander. The ball turned square and he was beaten frightfully. You know, normally you get scared that, oh my God, how am I going to tackle the next one? And this guy, the next ball, he steps out and hits against the break over long on for six. Yeah, I remember that shot. Yeah. You remember that shot? Now yeah. that, <laughs> no coach can teach you. And if somebody says he can teach you, he's a, uh, impossible. Impossible. I, it'll never happen. In fact, we'll tell you differently. So sometimes coaching is not what you need and you've got to keep it simple. You've got to keep it to yourself. And yes, uh, when you're young, you, you use the coaches. But when you get old, the more self-belief and the belief in your own ability to handle a situation you must not uh, change that. Uh, too much thinking, too much analysis, too much preparation is also inimical to performance. I agree. And, you know, it, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because we live in this world where there's so much analysis, not just among professionals, but even fans of the game, we love to analyze. And we've talked to so many people who are passionate fans and they're into analyzing everything. We have right here in our podcast, we have him and Ish and Mike, they're very analytical. Um, I think there's a way that both can coexist where you allow a player to exhibit his natural game. So taking the example of Rishabh Pant, you don't have to take away his natural tendencies, his natural style. You can supplement that to make him better, to maximize that, rare, that raw talent that he has. I know I'm saying the word talent again, but it's just that raw, you know, skills that he has, you can maximize that with the help of it. And I think that's the job of the coach in many ways is to make sure that there's that right balance. Exactly. Exactly. It's fascinating you talk about the mental side of the game. Now, I wanted to ask you at, at the domestic level, when you're dealing with young cricketers, right, who are coming up, how much of your role is to do with mental condition and building character? Because Rahul Ravid has talked about this, that, you know, you can't go on to play for India all the time. So your your uh, job as a coach should be to condition them to be better people. So does that play a role as well? The mental aspect to me in cricket is probably the most important uh, uh, attribute that you require to succeed at the highest level. Um, it's uh, the weightage I'd give to it is paramount. It's more than fitness. It's more than uh, skill or talent or whatever you want to call it. Uh, because, you know, um, a lot of reasons. Uh, firstly, I believe that if you haven't played sport, you're only half educated. Uh, it's not necessary at the highest level, but just sport. Because, you know, like, like all of us keep saying, it, it's such a character builder. It's a nation builder. It's, you know, you learn how to lose. And more importantly, you've got to learn how to win. Um, and to handle yourself in all situations, um, and cricket is such a sport that you will lose more than you'll win. And uh, there's so many cases of people at the highest level, big performers who, who have actually lost their minds and uh, have gone into depression and are not being able to handle it. Um, so uh, that, that is one. Secondly, every time you go into play, there is such a lot of stress, such a lot of pressure. Uh, it's, it's not funny because your life depends on this performance. So, um, you know, I'll give you another example. Somebody once asked me, you know, that when you're going to play your first test match, what are you going through? Uh, 
you know, it's something akin to me telling you that, hey, Manish, uh, uh, you know, you're, you're an architect, okay? And uh, I'm giving you five years to go and perfect your, your subject. And then you're going to come across uh, five of us selectors and we'll assess you on that day after five years of preparation. And if you can convince us, then we'll give you a job of a million dollars a month. And if for some reason uh, one of us is not, then you don't get that job. And it's not only that. It's not only that you don't get that job, but you don't get any other job for the rest of your life. Because that's what it was in India. Now, thanks to the IPL and the money coming and percolating down to domestic season, there is still a life that can be made, even if you're not playing for India. But earlier, the, the spotlight was on the cricketers making so much money, but only about six or eight guys actually made the money and the rest were... Um, traumatized by this. Uh, and uh, so the mental aspect in a country like India is enormous because, you know, if you're playing for the country, you're making huge money. And if you're not, you're not making anything. Uh, at pittance, you were actually supported by the government in a job in a nationalized bank, etc. So uh, it was that difficult. So mentally, you have to be there. And this pressure, pressure dear ones you know they are the ones wishing you well and they're the ones you don't want to let down and anything can happen when you go to bat you know the best you may play two matches and not get runs and get discarded the next guy comes in he gets runs and you're never looked at uh, so all, although you may have been better and you may have had thousands of runs in the domestic circuit so a lot of that uh, plays on the mind so much that's why it's imperative that you have a strong mind and uh, it's a one-ball game, Manish. Uh, you know what that means, yeah? No mistakes. Uh, it doesn't tolerate a mistake. I mean, that's it. Uh, yeah. it. And you've got to be strong to sort of handle that, right? Because yeah. failure is the norm. And exactly. you've got to understand that, right? Exactly. And not right. succumb to it, you know? Don't fear failure. Because, um, in fact, as I say, Because this Mm, you will right. be failing more than you succeed. In fact, that is the case in most careers. Uh, nobody <laughs> just has a straight up graph. But in cricket, it's down, 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 a little up and down, down, down. You keep going down and then going up. You know, you just make sure that you don't uh, succumb mentally. It's funny you gave the example of Himanish being uh, an architect, but Himanish is actually into theoretical physics. So he wow. may actually <laughs> understand that a little bit better. Research is mostly failure. There are no successes in research. It's mostly you. failure. And theoretical <laughs> physics, we're reading so much about uh, these new particles that they're talking yeah, about. Yeah, right, 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 changing, right. Changing the entire thinking of the universe. Yeah. Right, right, right. I am working on that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but that that's quite fascinating because as observers outside, we sort of wonder about the mental aspect of the game and whether it matters at all. Uh, but you've shed some light on that. Now, the youngsters who are coming out of the Indian system are doing so well in test matches, ODIs, T20s. Do you see this as a result of a stronger domestic system? Pipelines are better. Would you say that the money coming from the IPL is finally percolating down through systems and strengthening them? It's such a fantastic thing to see. Uh, every Everyone who's been given a chance is doing so well. Guys who, you know, I thought were ordinary are actually special. Um, you know, take the instance of a Washington Sundar. Take the instance of a Shardul Thakur. Take the instance of 
anybody, all these guys who've come in and performed, you know, none of them was extra special. None of them was a Tendulkar or a Ganguly or a Dravid. So this is another, an example of, uh, you know, the mental aspect of the players in India improving. You know, they're almost ready when they're entering. The jump from domestic cricket to the international circuit is not seeming so unsurmountable to them as it was to us. Uh, so uh, that's one definite aspect that's improved. It's also to do with the IPL, I believe. Uh, and that there is a, a, a fair bit of financial security playing domestic cricket. It's not all or nothing kind of a scenario. You are doing, in fact, some of these guys are making more money domestic playing domestic cricket than playing for India. So uh, in that sense, that's one pressure that's out of the equation. The other is that playing in the IPL, you're actually you know, locking arms with the best in the world. And they're not looking like, uh, you know, gods or demigods when they're playing in the international scenario because you're playing against them and they look pretty fallible, yeah? they're ordinary. So uh, that's another mental aspect that's uh, been a big plus for uh, the domestic cricketers. And uh, the domestic circuit has also improved, uh, Manish. Uh, the Ranjiti standards that I'm seeing, uh, you know, as a coach... Um, have gone uh, have gone really much, much higher than in our time. Because now every team that you play against has got two or three good bowlers, two or three good batsmen, and it's always a fight. You know, uh, one bad session and you can lose the game. And earlier it was that until you reached the semi-final stage, you were not really taxed. You know, Bengal is playing Tripura and Orissa right. and Bihar. And and so many teams as well. Yes. And right. now the... Uh, now, the teams that you're playing against are across the uh, spectrum. In, in, I mean, in your group, Bengal is probably playing Bombay and, um, you know, Vidarbha and Saurashtra. And each one of them is damn good. And we are playing on pretty tough wickets. Uh, nowadays, the one difference is that the wickets are being prepared centrally, um, <clears throat> although it's home and away base. But the home association cannot make a rank turner because they've got spinners like the Indians did against England. Uh, in the domestic circuit, that's not allowed. Uh, they are controlled centrally. There is a observer and the, uh, whatever you call it, curator that is sent by the board who is a neutral person. You know, if you're playing a match against Bombay in Kolkata, we have uh, the curator coming from Tamil Nadu. And he's been advised that we want this kind of wicket. You know, we want a hard, bouncy, grassy track. Hence, you're getting so many fast bowlers. And the ability of the batsman to play fast bowling, which earlier was not so uh, prevalent. So a lot has changed and uh, I am loving it. I mean, uh, how, you know, it fills me with pride when I see, you know, a reserve bench like this. Imagine a guy getting an 80 not out coming at number eight and then being dropped the next game. Because, yeah, the bench strength is so strong. Yeah, you wait your turn. It's amazing. So suddenly things have uh, started looking up for the better. Also, the fitness standards have uh, really gone through the roof, thanks to um, Virat Kohli. I, I think he's, uh, you know, like watershed uh, before Virat Kohli and after Virat Kohli. Uh, there is a complete difference, and that's percolated down uh, to the domestic level as well. Fitness standards have really improved vastly. So we earlier would be handicapped in our fielding, in our fitness. You know, you'd score... 60, 70 runs and get out because you're not aware actually that, you know, your concentration has gone down because you're 
not strong enough or you're tired. But now guys are running at 180 not out as fast as they're running the first three. They don't even break into a sweat and they're aggressive in the running. Uh, they're putting pressure earlier in our time. If you're in a one-day international and you're standing at deep cover, you have nothing to do. The guy's not going to take the second and you can't stop the first. You just have to stop the boundary and then throw it in. Now, if you are a fraction of a second late in assessing the ball coming to you and which direction it's going, he's going to run too. And you're sweating and you're, right. going to be, you're going to be made to look like a fool. So a lot has changed. And the Indian scenario is we are as fit, if not fitter, than the rest of the world. Also, you know, as someone who has been following the Indian cricket team since the late 90s, I remember in those days, forget the domestic scene, even like when we were playing international cricket, when the opposition batsman would hit a shot and then the ball was going towards the boundary, it would seem like the Indian fielders would escort the ball to the ropes and then they would collect the ball and throw it back. But now you can see, you know, international, you can see the IPL. Um, and I wonder if it's also a lot to do with accountability, accountable to the, for the amount of money you're being paid and the expectations that is being placed on you. Players know that they have to do a lot more than just, you know, stand in the field to stop a ball or just relay the ball back. Uh, they now put in more effort. And I feel like that's been a huge change in just the last 20 years. Absolutely. I agree. It's amazing because I think players look up to the top players and someone like Virat Kohli setting an example like that has been so wonderful at domestic level as well. Um, you talked about fast bowlers as well. And we have an upsurge of fast bowling now in India, right? So we have people like Kartik Tyagi, Mavi, Nagar Koti. We have so many people coming up. Now, how much of that has to do with the pitches? And how much of that has to do with the body of knowledge improving with regard to fast bowling in the system of Indian cricket? You know, I think it's, it's a lot to do with wickets, Manish, because... Uh, this shift in wickets, the preparation of wickets in the Indian domestic circuit uh, has been such that uh, over the last, and it's not happened in the last couple of years, it's been like this for the last five, seven years. Um, suddenly, in a four-day game, the spinner is hardly bowling 15 overs. It's only the fast bowlers and you are compelled, every team is compelled to three top fast bowlers. Plus, uh, an all-rounder who will be, you know, medium or gentle fast and who will bat, who's primarily a batsman. So, uh, it's basically the wicket. Suddenly, uh, over 30-odd teams, you need 100-odd fast bowlers playing at the highest level. And to get that, it's not been an easy ride. It's been there for the last 7, 8, 10 years. And the teams that had the fast bowlers would win. On track, the ball just doesn't turn. It's got grass, it's hard. And the spinner has got a very little role to play as opposed to earlier when only the spinners would play. Um, so uh, we've got as good a fast bowling combination now with the reserve bench thing and guys coming up that uh, rivals anybody else in the world. So uh, it's mainly the wickets. And of course, with progress of the sport and the knowledge that's percolating, of course, it's improving. Of course, the coaching and the training and the methodology and uh, all that is improving and the sport never stays static. It's progressing all the time. So, uh, yeah, a lot has changed in uh, Indian cricket, but primarily uh, for the fast bowling, you've got to thank wickets because otherwise, if the wickets were bald and dusty, the fast bowlers got nothing to do. And it's the spinners who will always be bowling. So, uh, that, that has been a complete shift in Indian cricket. Do you think it's also leading to a problem in the number of spin stocks we have in domestic cricket? Yes. 
Yes, you you don't have any any spinner now. So you, there is a problem have... in domestic cricket where you don't have spinners coming up. No, you, there is no yeah. spinner. And if you know earlier, everybody would say that Indians play spin very well. We don't play spin very well. We, no longer do we play. There's nobody who sweeps the ball who knows how to sweep the ball. Um, on a turning track, we are just as much at sea as anybody else. Maybe not as bad as the English, but otherwise, uh, it's we're not the same anymore. India's the characteristic has changed. We're all, all marginally better than the rest in spin. So when it comes down to having to win, you know, like against England, you prepare those tracks, and uh, they're much worse than you are, and less prepared than you are. We have still a few spinners, but they have none. Then that's a problem. So uh, we've used that to our advantage to be able to win and reach the top uh, of the table. But uh, generally, we are not that bad. But if you go, and the same applies to us, if we go to New Zealand, where there'll be moisture-laden, grassy tracks, we'll be at sea. Maybe not as much as we were before, but we'll still lose the series. We'll still find it difficult to beat England in England if they prepare, if they do to us what we did to them. Um, I wanted to talk about batting right after this because as someone who's batted in Mumbai or Rajkot or Kolkata, how difficult has it become for a domestic player to go to New Zealand and play a test match and do well as a batsman? And what sort of technical changes do you think they could be making better? Because we always face this problem, right? When players go to New Zealand or England, they're not batting well, right? Uh, Manish, uh, it's difficult to say, you see, technique and the way you play your game and your mentality and... um, approach and everything is not something that you can change overnight. It's not something Yes, the endeavor of course is that from the coaching aspect, from the players aspect, from the practice and the preparation. But it's not easy. England It's not that simple. Right. <clears throat> I think up to about 10% you can. Two months before build up uh, uh, you have to be aware of what you're going to expect and how the ball is going to behave. But the fact is that you are not acclimatized to that late movement, the ball coming straight in the air, pitching and moving off the seam. Uh, in fact, nobody on earth is uh, actually equipped to handle a ball that does not do anything in the air, lands on the wicket and then deviates uh, almost two, three inches. <clears throat> nobody, not the English, not the Australian, nobody. So, uh, yet within this uh, scenario, some are slightly better. You know, that's where they say that when you go to England, where the ball is moving late, you've got to play late. If you reach Mm. out towards the ball, I mean, if you grope towards the ball, you're more likely to get, don't ask me why, all right? You're the scientist. Uh, (laughs) But if you're pushing at the ball, uh, you're more likely to get an edge than when you're playing late. The ball generally tends to beat the bat more than take the edge. So, and also the other thing is you play with soft hands. When you're groping for the ball or reaching out and moving towards the ball, the chances The edges will fly. Yeah, the edges will fly. So all those things, listen, it's not rocket science or it's not theoretical physics. It's a simple sport. (laughs) (laughs) It's a simple sport. And the simpler you keep it, the better. That's why I keep telling you, Yes, analysis. Yes, stats. Yes, uh, opposition uh, video uh, analysis and understanding. But try and keep it. It's a simple game. You have 200 games, I have 201. But simple, keep ball, hai, bat, and play. Stay in the present. Don't overload yourself with too much analysis. 
the the point I'm making is too much analysis. Of course, uh, every team sits and analyzes a lot of aspects of the game. But uh, please try and keep it simple and try and trust your own opinion. Right. Yeah. So with the comment you had for spin that, you know, the talent pool is definitely feels like it's shrinking a little bit in the domestic circuit. I was wondering how much do you attribute that to four-day cricket versus five-day Ranji Trophy cricket? Do you think like having that extra fifth day where the tra- tracks are a little uh, more worn out would pre- would help India produce a few more spinners? All oh, right, that's a terrific thing. Yeah, of course, uh, <clears throat> the fifth day makes a huge impact on the spinner. You're absolutely right. If the Ranji Trophy is made into five days, certainly we'll be able to arrest this downward slide of the spinning talent because they'll have more to do. Uh, fifth day, then, you know, the entire balance of the team, in fact, uh, will have to change. You will have to include a frontline spinner, even if he's not a batsman. Nowadays, what's happening? Uh, what a fabulous question. Uh, nowadays, what's happening is, even I am looking at my number seven and number eight as batsmen who can bowl because bulk of the wicket taking is going to be my number 9 10 and 11 who are my fast bowlers i don't have a couple so you know right. <laughs> the spinners um, who will bowl a few over at best you know 15 and 7 out of uh, let's say 100 and, 140 or 120 um, and if it's less than 100 then they'll not bowl because the fast bowlers would be taking the wickets and they wouldn't be required uh, on the fifth day uh, yeah, then the entire thinking of the, the the sport will change across the board. Of course, that's a, that's a terrific idea. And, you know, the talent pool is not shrinking slightly. It's shrinking radically. You can't find very few. Uh, you know, this Akshar Patel. Right. Akshar Patel is not a spinner. He's, uh, he's an, uh, a cricketer. Uh, listen, I'm taking nothing away from him. Uh, all right. Uh, you play the field you get. Those were unplayable tracks. Right. Just a guy who bowls fast and furiously, doesn't get any ball to turn on. And uh, he is a, you know, 2020 cricketer or maybe a one-day cricketer. Thoda. He'll bat very well at down the order. He'll hit a few, get you 30-40 runs. He'll bowl reasonably okay. But he's not a five-day match winner, as he's being made out to be. Um, you know, there's no guile. There's no... He, he's good because he can keep it on the spot and bowl it fast. And right. because the wicket is so responsive that he's getting the ball to turn and some not to turn and with this DRS, it's a killer. It's impossible to play him. But come, let him go to Australia and try and play him as a spinner. Right. So, moving to sort of your uh, I wanted to talk about you know Bengal winning the Ranji Trophy, and I, I know that was your last game as a player. Uh, coincidentally, also Saurav Ganguly's first first-class game. Um, and I've read the stories about the rain interruptions, uh, playing a strong Delhi side. Um, but tell us more about the whole season. Um, what did you feel the chances were back then that Bengal would have to win it? Um, I remember reading that you even thought even in the final it was going to be always tough because Delhi had six India players. So uh, just wondering what your thoughts were, you know, when the first game was about to happen that season. You know, if anybody tells you that uh, when you started the season, you know, we were thinking of winning the trophy. No, if you thought of it like that, your mind became uh, because you had teams like Bombay with about six India cricketers, Delhi with six current and another three or four who had played in the recent past. Um, So we... 
I didn't think at all, uh, Mike. Uh, I didn't think at all about winning. Um, you know, the the main thing was to stay in the present, take one game at a time. Every year, I would say that one game at a time, and uh, don't think of. Uh, something that seems so distant to you uh, that you suddenly become weak. So just play it as it comes. And we had some fabulous games that year. Uh, we beat Bombay. Uh, after Bombay scored some 560 or 70 for six declare, uh, <clears throat> we, again, four days, so we couldn't complete the first inning. So uh, we won on the quotient rule. And uh, right. Yeah, contrary popular belief, the quotient rule was a fabulous rule. In fact, it was a very tough rule. You know, let me explain it. Uh, Bombay had scored uh, at a quotient of about 90. That means runs per wicket lost. Okay, so right. so we had to score at above 90. So a situation arrived when we batted really well that at one stage, at the end, 20 overs were being bowled. Ashok Malhotra came into bat and we needed about 50 runs, if we got 50 runs in 20 overs, then even if one of us, were, I was batting, if one of us was out, we would still win. But if we didn't get those 50 runs in 20 overs, then the minute we lost a wicket, we lost the game. So when he came to bat, I said, Ashok, it's best that we go for that 50 plus. And the ball was turning square. Ravi was bowling from one end. And I think the other guy was an off spinner who was hitting you hard. Like you said, you know, the ball, the wicket had deteriorated. And uh, Ashok came and he was beaten twice in a row. And then he came to me after the over and said, listen, let's junk this 50 runs. Many out, out. So we had to bat 20 overs with nine round us and uh, not get out. If one of us was out, then we had lost the game. So uh, it, it was that tough. Yeah. It was a very tough rule, but we won. Fortunately, we beat Bombay. We, I think we scored 400 for four or something like that. And uh, we won the game. And uh, after that, we beat Hyderabad. And coming up against Delhi, I was preparing myself mentally to, you know, score above 500 if we have to win. Batting first, uh, because they were, oh gosh, they were uh, just too good on paper. But as luck would have it, uh, you know, they batted, we lost the toss, they batted first. And we got them for about 260 or 250. Uh, some spectacular catches, some great luck, uh, some bad batting all rolled into one. And when they were all out for 252, I remember Kirti Azad was my junior. I used to play cricket before and, you know, he was in college with me as well. And he was the captain of Delhi and he'd got 100. And he was telling me, you know, I was batting overnight and those days we used to have a rest day. And he'd ring me up throughout the rest day. About He rang me up about at least 15 times to say, Piggy, that's my pet name. Uh, <laughs> tomorrow, tomorrow, first ball out. First ball out. And I told him, Kirti, pehle tu tu yes dekh le. This is a opportunity that you have handed us on a platter. This Delhi side getting out for 250 against us won't happen in the next 50 games on such a placid batting. You've given us this opportunity and it's an opportunity of a lifetime. Up to Joe Marzi Karle, man, 252 to and, and the other thing, you know, he was playing mind games. I said, you know, if you had to get at me mentally, you should have at least kept the okay, first half an hour, you're out. God forbid, you know, so there were a lot of mind games and all going on. And I was confident, yeah, so <clears throat> as luck would have it, rain and 
everything else and we we had to score about 60 70 runs now or i can't really remember how many but uh, the game was heavily loaded in our favor and uh, i was i was not out on 50 plus so i was uh, i didn't even once occur to me that i'd lose that game not even once in my weakest moment and you know those guys it was an absolute battle i'll tell you another story about that you know interesting was that in those days we used to have a uh, rule that you had to bowl 15 overs in the hour and if you didn't you would concede penalty runs to the opposition per over bowl short and <clears throat> kirti was batting he got 100 in that innings i was at slip and we were running short by about five or six overs because of our fast bowlers and uh, and things and then we brought on the spinners to try and catch up the over rate and kirti was taking too long to bat he was just not ready every time the bowler reached his bowling run up it's common etiquette that you be ready because you have enough time to assess you know now he's going back now there and by the time he reaches his run up you should be ready to face him don't keep him waiting so he was keeping him waiting every ball so i would i would tell him well, come on yeah we are short and overs we are very well trying to do it what are you doing and he would say oh you walk up to the umpire is disturbing this arun lal is disturbing you know it's like uh, and he waste another two minutes. so i tried it a couple of times again and again he wasted time so that's when i told him kirti now you better pray that i get out early because i'm going to make you wait like you've never waited before shamelessly and telling in front of the empire would be telling you that i'm going to do this and i'm going to do this. so that's what i did we were six overs short i said whatever you do i'm going to make you eight overs short you know that's the ranji trophy final going on and manoj prabhakar and sanjeev sharma coming into bowl just as they would reach the bowling run up and get out somebody's on top of the screen you know oh god he's Then I'd get off and go to the umpire and show him there's something in my eye. There was nothing, in it. and they got so frustrated. I said, "Now you tell your captain." So I, it was like war that day, you know. Um, uh, and we we're going to win. I said, "Whatever disciplinary action you want to take, that's later. Game is mine. I'm going to take those six overs back." And I did take those six overs back, although the game didn't end, so we never got the benefit of those penalty runs. But if it ever came to that stage, we would have won only on those penalty runs. So it's interesting to note that. it's this is not uh, so that is probably the first time but definitely not the last time a captain from bengal was making the opposition captain wait for something <laughs> so it seems to be a trade that has carried on and you know so sarav ganguly what are your initial thoughts on him when he made his debut you know he made his debut in australia and uh, he was dropped after that tour i think he played a one day international or a couple of one day internationals and he was yeah, dropped yeah yeah and uh, my view was listen if there's ever been a fan of sort of ganguly uh, i've been like a like a self proclaimed elder brother and uh, <clears throat> uh, nobody's had more faith in his abilities because i saw him grow up from age 15 16 17 he once played an exhibition game in the cricket club in calcutta uh, which is a reasonable sized ground at the age of 15 and he was hitting the ball out of the club onto the tram tracks across the road hmm. with ease he hit about 6 to 8 sixes it was a club game no doubt uh, but suddenly I, i i had never seen anything like this in my life in those days for somebody to strike the ball like a golfer it, it was he was something absolutely out of the ordinary so uh, i always said that you know even he doesn't have Uh, as much faith in his abilities as i do and um, when he went to australia he not quite ready mentally if he wasn't dropped australia and he didn't have those one or two years to come back 
you know, um, the game at the international level. He may never have made. If he was persistent mm. with then, he may have just uh, faded out. But the good thing was that he was dropped and he had enough time to come back and get ready. And I remember, you know, just before the, the team was being selected for England, I was doing commentary um, in an international game in India. I can't remember against who it was. And Harsha and Bhogli and I were doing commentary. And he said, you know, Arun, uh, what are your thoughts on the team? And I said, you know, the team is going to have a special player in it. And that's Arun Ganguly. So I said, oh, he laughed at me, you know, on, on air. He said, you can't see beyond each zone. I said, no, take it from me. This guy is going to be in the team and, and he should be in the team. And he still reminds me because that's when, when he was selected for England, a lot of people had missed, you know, that he is there because Mr. Dalmia is the chairman of the uh, president of the board and he's got his support and his push of the East and all that. Um, the quota systems and a lot of, a lot of comments uh, were there. And eventually, you know, when he got his chance, he got those hundreds in England. And of course, he made history. Uh, so, yeah. um, uh, absolutely. And another thing, uh, you know, in those days, I remember um, this was before the IPL started. And not many people know that before the IPL started, there was an endeavor to run uh, the an, an IPL. It was called the Indian Cricket League then mm. um, by the same uh, Mr. Modi, Lalit Modi. Uh, privately, uh, through uh, you know the Gwalior Cricket Association, uh, were going to run uh, a league, which was then put down by Mr. Dalmia because he felt that it was like a takeover bid, like a carry packer kind of. Thing. And mm. the blueprint was ready then. This was 1997, uh, and in those days, I was working on that project with Lalit Mohan to prepare that league. And uh, he once uh, that time he asked me in one of those. That, you know, Arun, uh, we've got this Godfrey Phillips and we've got Foursquare and we want to take on a few cricketers as sponsors, you know. In those days, you put a sticker on the bat, Foursquare and things like that. And uh, who would you recommend? I said, sort of Ganguly. I said, you'll get this guy very, very cheap now. Nobody knows of him. Even he doesn't know of himself. Uh, sign him on for five years. And he said, yeah, again, they said, yeah, you can't see beyond these. And they didn't. And they've never regretted it more, you know. <laughs> they didn't sign on sort of Ganguly. So he he was, uh, I, I've been an absolute fan and a very special cricketer coming out, not coming from the system. He, uh, you know, beyond the system. Right. And I kind of want to briefly talk about, uh, ask about your commentary career because my earliest memory of you is obviously not as a player, uh, but as someone who I've seen during games on air as a commentator, and for us cricket fans, you know, one of our favorite pastimes when we are watching these games on TV is to critique the commentators. Uh, you know, there are a few commentators who, who command widespread respect due to the understanding of the game and just their analytical skills. But for the most part, I feel that a lot of commentators don't do any basic research about the teams that they are commentating on, or they spend more time talking about the good old days, you know, the glory days. Uh, and I'm just curious, as a commentator, uh, how did you approach your role? Uh, you know, are we being unfair by expecting commentators to know everything about the game in the modern era? You know, let me tell you one thing, Manny, that, um, no, one thing, I'll tell you three things. The commentator knows everything about the game okay. because he's got 2020 vision and he's the hindsight. He's always talking after the event has occurred. Yeah. Most <laughs> yeah. times. And secondly, 
uh, we're talking about preparation and knowledge of teams and all that. We have with us um, a battery of stats guys right. who are feeding us information regarding every aspect of the current player of the opposition team. Whatever I want, I get. I don't have to prepare. I've got it. Mm-hmm. He gives it to me. Uh, you know, I suddenly ask, uh, I want to make a comment on Rahul Dravid in Ahmedabad in 1993. And he'll tell me, you know, he did this and he did that and he was dropped twice and he was this and he, on that thing. So I ask him, he says, give me 30 seconds and I've, it's been pulled out from the computer and I've got it and he's given me the slip right there and, and then I'm talking very knowledgeably about Rahul Dravid. So, uh, Yes, you have to have a certain kind of preparation, but 90% is fed. We don't have to make any prior preparation. Secondly, how I approached my commentary was, you know, I wanted to be very instinctive rather than prepared. Because once you're prepared about a certain aspect of the game, of course it helps. But then, you know, you're always looking for an opportunity of somehow impressing the, the viewers about your knowledge of your preparation. So you're trying to stuff in things all the time and then you get carried away with. So uh, one, it has to be instinctive and it has to be your own to the extent that, you know, I'm doing commentary with a, you know, a team of commentators who are way, way more accomplished than you in their cricketing career. Let's say I'm doing commentary with an Ian Chappell. Uh, along with him is a Tony Gregg, along with him is a Sunil Gavaskar, and then there's a Puni Arunla. Now, when I'm going to do commentary, what I did was, suppose Gregg and Gavaskar are doing commentary, and I'm going to comment next. I made it a point not to hear what they were saying, because I would get so colored and influenced by them that I would be parroting them and agreeing with whatever else they said. So there was, it was impossible for me to say I don't agree here. You know, so uh, it was very difficult for me. So uh, what I did was I never heard them. So when I came to commentate, I didn't know what they had said. So there were many occasions when I said something totally opposed to what they had said. But then that's giving another perspective to the viewer. There is nothing certain about cricket. There's nothing. There's no just one way of doing it. There's no just one way of analyzing what will happen next or what the captain is thinking or what he should think. Um, So the idea is the picture is speaking 90% of the game. You have to now add value to the picture. If you keep describing the picture all the time, you are then going to be just one of those other guys. Everybody can do that, you know? So while there is value in describing technique, while there is value in describing how good he looked, how good he was positioned, how balanced he was and all that, yes, of course, it's part of that. But more than that, you've got to analyze what's going on in the game at the moment. What's the captain thinking? What's the batting captain thinking? What are the strategies at play? Why has he made this bowling change? Or or should he have made this bowling change? Uh, A lot of other things that are not that very discernible. Um, And it doesn't have to be what Gavaskar thinks. So that's that's important. Uh, For me, that was very important. Uh, And to be uh, be there without too much preparation. Of course, uh, you obviously think about the game and where it's at before you come into the next day of commentary. Uh, how you would approach it. So you you spend about an hour um, preparing in that sense that if you were captain, what were your thoughts? 
uh, what are the bowling changes would you change the batting order would you what would you do and how were you positioned what would be your advice as a coach what would be your advice as a captain all those things you 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 uh, you know put through in your mind and then you're ready to that's a really an interesting perspective because again for us when you're watching from outside the game we don't know the mindset of not just the commentators but the production team like what what is the approach they want to take all we know is what we want to hear and what we expect to hear and then it's just easy to you know uh critique the commentator's job and say well they're not offering any value the other thing is there is a big difference in doing commentary in australia as is different in west indies as is extremely different to do commentary in india and pakistan you know why because in india it's a huge following it's astronomical and for the most part it's very diverse you're speaking also to the housewife fan who's never held a cricket ball in her life who doesn't know what it weighs he doesn't know how it feels uh, it's double dutch to the housewife if i say you know the mid wicket should be wider oh what the hell does that mean uh, <clears throat> while in england the following is i don't know the exact figures but a lot more of people who understand the game more who are connoisseurs who are followers of the game while in india you have a cross section you have somebody uh, who's watching it for the first time and a huge amount of you know um, lakhs of people who are probably watching their first game and uh, lakhs of people who don't understand the finer points of the game but only hitting the ball the viewership the the spectacle the winning uh, the excitement of how close you are of a one day international three wickets 14 balls 18 runs all that you know so your job speak to all of them so sometimes although you as a connoisseur would be critical yeah why is he stating the obvious here? but you're well advised if you are a commentator for a television company you have to increase viewership not decrease so while you it's not an easy thing to do to keep in your mind that every time i come on air i have to try and make sure that the guy who's hearing me comes back for the next match because he so enjoyed it and so you have to it's a cross section it's educated it's analytical it's uh, speaking the obvious it's simplistic and it's in depth it's a real tough job if you view it like that so you will always get a critical uh, you know viewership somebody will say uh, you know oh gosh yeah. it's just all the time states the obvious and somebody will say wow yaar you know look at him uh, he brought out this insight so you've got to speak to every every guy there India's commentary is very tough. I didn't even think about the perspective of the audience. <laughs> you know, yeah, audience yeah. of different countries and what, yeah. you know, they are expecting to uh and, and sticking with the theme of, you know, just life outside of cricket, you know, something personal that you shared a few years ago, you know, back in 2016, you know, you were diagnosed diagnosed with jaw cancer which effectively ended your commentary career and, you know, I read that you had to undergo intensive treatment that included a 14 hour surgery and a replacement of your jaw now i work with ca- cancer patients on a daily basis and i know everyone approaches their diagnosis differently can you elaborate on how you dealt with it in those first few months and how that has changed your life since then oh gosh uh, <clears throat> um <clears throat> you know many for me um i had what is called adenoid cystic carcinoma and before i proceed let me tell you this part of my face is reconstructed the good okay. thing was that, that my skin was intact 
the cancer had attacked my jawbone. It had come out of the salivary gland, engulfed the jawbone and everything else with it. So they <clears throat> totally reconstructed the jaw in the sense that they cut my, you know, they, because they wanted to preserve my face for commentary, they promised that they would not normally be cut from the lip downwards, right through the neck here, open okay. it out and then saw off jaw that's been affected and remove everything. So they said, we'll try our best. So what they did was they started from under the jaw, right through the neck to the ear, opened it out and worked like that. You know, they actually clip it on here and then they saw off the jaw and everything. So they removed the jaw right from here till here and uh, replaced it with the fibula, which is from the left leg. That thin bone that you have that is not the load-bearing bone, but it's a bone where a lot of your muscles are attached to. There is the tibia and the fibula in your leg. Uh, so uh, the fibula is the bone which a lot of your calf muscles and other ankle muscles are attached. So they cut that out, made small pieces and made the jaw. They removed everything. So I have no feeling this side of my face. Mm. I have no nerves. I have no um, salivary glands, lymph nodes, no muscles. The main, uh, the masticulating muscle has been removed. Everything. This face is, uh, it's just preserved. They made the jaw only. Otherwise, the face would just go right in. And uh, <clears throat> they replaced the, you know, the, the tongue rests on a muscle. Um, and that had been affected as well. So they removed that, took everything out of the leg. Uh, muscle from my left leg and made a new muscle on which the tongue would rest. I didn't know that then, but if you don't have that or you have a problem, then your tongue gets depressed and you find it difficult to talk. Uh, you can't talk and neither can you swallow. So they, to do that, they had the main time was used up in providing blood to these new constructions, the inside of the mouth, which they call the flap. The inside of the cheek had to be redone and the muscle had to be redone. So they had to supply uh, the blood and the capillaries and everything were taken from the leg and done. So uh, it's unbelievable what they did. Uh, and it, it's you know one of those things that they had a fabulous day at, uh, at, at the office. And I was very lucky that they did. Uh, they kept me alive for so long. Uh, normally they do an operation like this, at least in India, I was told that sometimes you have to close you and then open you again after three months uh, wow. to carry it on. So this, this, uh, I was fortunate that they managed to do it. And, and here I am talking, um, almost, my diction is almost there, 90% there. And I'm swallowing, uh, I'm eating food. Because when I went into the operation, they were not sure that I'd, I'd, I would be able to swallow. So they, you know, I might have had to have that tube through my nose for the rest of my life. But uh, I'm better than before, yeah, you know. Uh, the marvels of modern day medic medicine and medical people. And they, they were all young guys. Uh, they were all, you know, with a sense of humor. Uh, yeah. I remember going into the operation and one of them telling me, Arun, now that we're going to really alter your face, um, you know, who would you like to be like? Uh, you know, would you want to be, <laughs> you know, uh, whatever, Brad Pitt? I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> I want to be whatever. So things like that, you know, they kept it very... And I know the pressure, when I was talking to you about pressure, these guys were under enormous pressure, uh, you know, going into this operation. Uh, it's not an ordinary one. I don't think they had too much experience with it either. But mm. they were a, a very committed team. You know, the plastic surgeons had to do it. The oncologists had to do it. 
Um, uh, there were about a battery of about 12, 14 who were all involved in doing their bit in this. So it was fabulous. But uh, I was absolutely fit when I was diagnosed. I was training for two, two and a half hours. I couldn't believe it. I had this pain in the jaw. I had this problem, yes. And I had had it for about a couple of years. I'd ignored it thinking that it's a tooth problem. It wasn't easy to diagnose and it was left uh, to fester and reach such an advanced stage that it totally engulfed everything. Um, but uh, I was still fit. I had a pain in the jaw, but I was doing everything. I was doing commentary. I was training. I was doing everything like a normal person. And I thought myself to be like Superman. Yeah? So yeah. when I when it happened, um, it was a bit of a blow. But I said, yeah, it never once occurred to me that I would lose my life. Never once. Not even once did it happen. I thought I, it's a minor distraction. Um, although I had to forfeit contracts, you know, worth a lot of money uh, for about three or four. They said six months. Uh, you can't. Um, and I remember there being the IPL and the World Cup and it was February and just two, three months old. Uh, the t uh, one of the doctors said that Arun, this is, it's been there for about two and a half, three years. And uh, we can wait another two months, three months if you want. I said, no, no, no. I want to get it out now. Um, if I have to, I want to do it now. So they said, you know. The good thing about your cancer is that it's one of the slowest growing cancers. That's why you survived. Um, mm. This is the one cancer that will give you an opportunity to fight it. And it's not that you're going to wake up one day and find that, oh gosh, it's in the liver, it's here, it's there. Uh, the bad thing about this cancer is that it can never leave you. You'll never be cured of it. It's going to come back, um, but it's going to give you time to fight it. So there's good and bad. And they told me that, you know, you could carry on and finish your contracts and then we'd operate on you after three months. But I didn't do that. I couldn't handle it uh, like that, knowing that it's there. And so I went through the operation. They said, once we go, once you go under the knife, it's, it's going to be about six months at least. It's uh, maybe two operations, lots of radiation. Uh, and in this particular cancer, chemotherapy doesn't work. Uh, because chemotherapy works only on cells that are multiplying that much faster. This is so slow that it cannot identify it. Um, so it's only radiation. And so I went through very strong radiations and the maximums of it. Um, but that's it. It didn't quite, uh, when I try and think back now, uh, the only thing that I came out of it relatively unscathed was the fact that I never once imagined that I'm going to die. Never occurred mm, to me yeah. that it could be life-threatening. I don't know why that was. Maybe my sporting background. I don't know what it was. But I just thought, yeah, it's a major inconvenience, but nothing more than that. I'm going to come out of it. Uh, that's probably what helped me. Very positive. Even uh, more than the operation, what really affected me was the radiation. Because I lost all taste. Uh, my tongue is totally burnt to this day. Um, you know, when you when your tongue gets scalded with very hot tea um, yeah. or very hot something, and you, you've got that feeling for a day or so, I've been like that for five years. <clears throat> I have very little taste. Taste is uh, a bit of a disaster. But other than that, I am back to being better than before. And the reason I was asking you that is because usually when uh, patients have been diagno diagnosed with cancer, they either stay the same or their perspective on life changes. And it sounds to me like the positive attitude that it, it was not at that instant, but 
right from your playing days to your commentary days, just the attitude that you had towards life, it sounds like that helped you carry through it, where despite all of the things that you just mentioned, all of the changes that physically uh, now that has changed for you, you're still looking at it like, I'm grateful for everything and I will still continue to live life. I will still continue to exercise my passion in the game by doing what I love. And it sounds like that's what's helped carry you and this it hasn't really impacted your life in a major way. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. I, I think the the one thing you've got to have if you've got to fight such a debilitating um, affliction is this positivity. <clears throat> you've just got to imagine the best. All the time the best. Let your mind never even for a moment be distracted by any negative. And I suppose that goes for everything, Benny. I mean, in any in any field of endeavor, in any... Uh, activity in life, if you're imagining the worst, then generally that happens. And if you're positive about it, as they say, the whole universe conspires to make it happen. Um, right. I, I actually believe in that. Um, and it's helped me a lot. Uh, I absolutely believe that there are forces in the universe that unknowingly, because we're not aware of it at the moment, unknowingly, you can actually make them work for you. You can get luck on your side. You can get things to happen for you. Uh, but you've got to be a believer, a believer in self, believer in uh, everything good is going to happen to me. You know, right. it just has to happen. to me. And it does happen to me. I actually believe that. I, I believe that I'm God's son. Um, anytime there's something wrong that's happening, it automatically corrects itself. Um, and I'm one of the chosen few. So it's been that way. And I, I am, my perspective to life I've got to admit has changed. Uh, when I came out of it and I thought that, you know, I can do commentary, I just don't feel like doing it anymore. Um, I wanted to travel. I, I wanted to spend more time with myself and my passion of the environment. So that same zest for doing commentary and enjoying it, and uh, that had gone. Um, so I started, uh, well, I was pulled into coaching and I'm enjoying that very much. And I actually do believe, I'm not saying it for effect, I actually do believe that I am happier now than I was before I had this operation. Uh, and I'm, maybe that's how my perspective to life has changed. I'm a lot happier. I'm a lot more grateful for being, uh, for breathing. The greatest gift of all is life itself. So uh, it is, uh, so not to be cluttered with what's happening to you and what's not happening to you and what you want and what you don't want and what he has said or what she has said. Uh, it's so irrelevant. And as your uh, physics expert will tell you, I mean, uh, you know, when you look at the universe, it, it doesn't matter. Yeah, nothing matters. I appreciate you sharing that with us. I know it, it is a personal question or a personal topic, but I appreciate that by sharing that it's, it's helpful for someone who's listening. Um, and on that note, I, I want to leave the last question to Nish. Uh, yeah, just, I just want to echo Benny. That was like, that was the conversation I wanted to hear on a Saturday morning. It really is. It's very uplifting. Thank you. And I was going to ask you this question, but I'm going to, the initial thought I was going to ask you was, I was going to ask you what, what are the type of questions that went through your mind during the diagnosis, the treatment, and then beyond. But it looks like you had immense resolve and mental fortitude to tap into and you came out of it stronger than you ever were, like you, you yourself said, right? So keeping that in mind, um, you know, I recently read your interview about healthy living um, in general, right? And the positive outlook, kind of like what you were 
mentioning a few minutes ago. Um, last year has been difficult to us in you know different ways, right? Uh, across the board, rich, poor, uh, coronavirus did not care about um, wealth gaps and all those artificial things, right? And keeping that in mind, what advice would you impart to um, the folks here on this call and other young young people outside of this call, you know, within cricket and outside of cricket, right? Like there's a lot of stress and anxiety. I myself have, have high levels of anxiety and, you know, the pandemic didn't do anything to curb that, right? It, in fact, made it worse, right? But however, things are looking up with vaccinations and stuff. So what general outlook, kind of like, you know, adding on to your previous uh, response, would you have uh, for the folks? Well, Nish, um, pandemic or no pandemic, the greatest gift that's given to you is your life. So you've got to work towards enjoying and loving every moment of it, loving it. And if you start loving it, there's no anxiety. You know, there is a saying which I follow, it's Hindi, okay? It's means that you are in any way blessed, whether you have it or you don't have it. You are blessed. It's <clears throat> it's a fabulous attitude. It's a fabulous way of being. Uh, how can I explain this? Uh, yes, I love my house. Yes, I love my car. Yes, I love my idiosyncrasies, uh, you know, regarding owning things that others don't have, uh, having a nice car, having a nice wash, having a nice house, all those things. But it... Honestly telling you, it doesn't matter to me if I, when I didn't have them. I was happy then, I am happy now. The, the uh, essence of it is being content with yourself. Uh, it's important. And once you are, then there's no anxiety. What is, the, what is anxiety? Anxiety is just fear of uh, you know, something that you can be anxious about anything. You want to succeed in your job, tomorrow's an interview. Uh, if you don't, suppose you don't, then what happens? Uh, I never imagined it like that. I just imagined it as another day of extreme happiness, uh, extreme well-being, extreme happiness, extreme joy. Uh, whether I get it or I don't get it, it's not that relevant. Uh, of course, it's, uh, it's come with a lot of age. It's also come with experience. It's come with maturity. It's come with what's transpired in my life. Everybody is uh, different. And their examples and what they go through are different and how they are fashioned is different. But my advice to everybody is that, you know, live each day. Love each day. Um, it, don't try and fashion it. Don't try and say that I want it to be like this. That day itself is such a joy. And if you try and fashion it, you're limiting your joy. It's, uh, I don't know if I'm getting across to you, you know, I, uh, it's, uh, it's like my commentary. Uh, don't be fashioned by what others are saying. Um, you know, let it be coming from within you. Let it be happening. Don't try and make it happen. The, every time you want to make it happen is the source of anxiety and stress and pressure and, um, you know, expectation. Let it happen. Love it. Love it. Love the failure. <laughs> love it. Uh, love the experience of it. You will fail. Uh, it's a given. Uh, it's an absolute given. It will happen. And it will happen to everybody. No, you're not uh, an exception that it's only happening to you. It's happening to everybody. And so, uh, what the hell? Yeah, right? uh, enjoy it. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Nish. Yeah. 
Well, perfect. Uh, I mean, I, I can't think of a better way to end this conversation, uh, you know, rather than that hopeful note. Uh, Arun, thank you so much uh, for your time today. I mean, we got so much perspective on not just cricket, but on life. And like you said, it is something that we all need to remember. Whatever field we're in, not just cricket, but just important to appreciate life, to enjoy life, and just focus on the things that make us happy. And for us, this conversation gave us all of that. Uh, so thank you again for your time. And, uh, you know, we wish you the best in every, in every way, including, uh, I don't know, when is uh, the next, uh, you know, when does the Ranji Trophy start up again? Do we have any updates on that? Yeah, I think October, early October. Early October. Okay. Well, uh, I will wish you and the Bengal team all the best. Uh, but thank again, you. Thank, you, thank you so much for your time. Loved it. Thank you. God Thank bless you, you guys. Yeah. Thank you. Sir. Enjoy yourselves. Bye. Well, that's it for this episode of The Last Wicket. A special thanks to Arun Lal for being generous with his time and perspectives. Meanwhile, do rate and subscribe to this podcast to be notified of new episodes. Follow us on your social media feeds. And do leave us a voice message if you would like to be featured on the show. Thank you for listening to us and from all of us here at The Last Wicked, stay safe and stay healthy.